We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we are looking at the Space 1999 episode, Dragon's Domain, 877 days after leaving Earth's orbit. Tony Cellini, astronaut, a man basically asleep, wakes up to a strange feeling and a sound and a light show which terrifies him. He attacks it with his impressive collection of weapons that he has in his spacious quarters on Moonbase Alpha, and it goes away. Dr. Russell, working the late shift in Medical Center, detects strange readings from Cellini's life signs and checks up on him. No, doctor. It's just a nightmare. Soon, Cellini leaves his quarters and tries to steal an eagle, trying to head out into the emptiness of space. He's stopped by Koenig, but just barely. This situation brings to fore old feelings of stuff and conflict because Dr. Russell thinks Cellini is a dangerous, hysterical nutjob, whereas Koenig thinks he is God's gift to everything astronaut. They don't get along on this particular issue. Dr. Russell recounts the story of the Ultra Probe, a deep space mission to the planet Ultra, which may or may not have been in deep space, which was run by Koenig, Bergman, and Cellini back in 1996. Cellini was the astronaut to go, and when they got to the far-off planet, which may or may not have been in our solar system, they find a fleet of dead ships. Aboard one of those ships, a monster, which kills all of Cellini's crew. He brilliantly saves himself and returns to Earth, where he's branded a nut because the black box doesn't match. And he's basically put on medical leave, whereas Koenig and Bergman, as a reminder that they need to keep their feet on the ground, are grounded. And that sets up the situation they were before they came back to Moonbase Alpha in the events of the breakaway. Years later, they're now in deep space, somewhere between galaxies, in the empty, I'm quoting that, in the empty vastness of space. And they find that graveyard of ships. Tony Cellini steals an eagle again and goes to confront the monster. Dr. Russell, of course, thinks he's going to cover up the evidence of his gross incompetence and psychological breakdown. When they arrive at the ship, the monster is indeed real, and it kills Cellini. And then Koenig kills it, and they leave. The end. Okay, Dragon's Domain. Dragon's Domain. Probably considered the greatest episode of Space 1999. Sort of a Don Quixote kind of story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except, uh, except the monster was real. Yeah. Yeah, he was real this time. All right, first off, I mean, actually, two episodes of Space 1999 are frequently held forward, and one is Breakaway. Yes. Which, you know, when you start off with your best, you're downhill. It's kind of hard. I know. know. It's pretty much downhill. And uh, Christopher Penfold wrote this, and he has had some some inconsistency with quality with The Last Sunset, The Guardian of Piri, Alpha Child, War Games, Oh Dear. Yes. And yet, 
this one's very popular. This one stands out. I wonder why. I don't know. What Maybe do you we think can find out. Well, I, to be honest, um, uh, I, I kind of like it, although it's not entirely what I remembered. Uh, the scenes that really stuck out in my memory were that of the monster and how it killed. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's a little gnarly, especially for that, that era of television. I mean, by today's standards, it's, it's, I suppose it may be considered tame, but it is a little gnarly for that day. I love and it, spitting the bodies out on rollers. All charred, yeah. That was kind of far out. <laughs> they just kind of sucked them in. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it's, there's, there's something a little Hitchcockian about uh, the way that monster works. I mean, we don't see how it's killing them. All we know is that it is. Right. It's, and it's, it's pretty nasty. Yes. Yes. It's, it's an interesting monster. Um, and it is a monster. Oh, without, without question. You know, Definitely a monster. Is, this is not the, uh, well, we're just misunderstood. Yeah, it's aliens. not the misunderstood. Like, yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's not the misunderstood alien of the week. Uh, this is a this is a a, a one eyed multi tentacled green beastie mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. an appetite for humans or apparently anything. Well, anything that's alive. But so far, all we ever all we ever saw was eat was humans. But um, it must have eaten. I mean, we have no idea what kind of uh, other life forms were on those other ships in that uh, graveyard. Right. I, I so I mean I kind of find this episode in a way reminds me of um, Confetti Check AOK in UFO, where hmm. we get the chance to go back. Yeah, that's a good point. Into our character's it, history, into and, our character's past. Yeah, and and learn. Now the problem with this is that they've contrived to get Doctor Russell in there. Uh, mm, um, it, mm. It's interesting that we get to see why John Koenig wasn't on Moonbase at the yeah. Space 1999, the, the, at Breakaway, that he's returning back to the base after, you know, he's obviously been there before because people know him by name and they're glad to see him again and the whole nine yards. And, uh, uh, you know, we've always known there was a story there. And and the story here is that uh, he and Bergman and Cellini were, uh, uh, let's call them the architects of this ultra probe. And the ultra probe has failed. Yeah. And for political reasons, um, Bergman and Koenig have to suffer too. Right. And um, and and good. That's fine. I mean, you only obviously only get one shot at that when you're telling flashback stories. Mm-hmm. And. I'm curious as to whether or not this backstory was intended to be there when they started the show. Because in UFO, I actually feel like the Confetti Check AOK story was there. Yes. You know, even going earlier in the episodes, we know he's got a son. We know that there's uh, uh, a bad situation with the ex-wife. And and her new husband and all that stuff. Right. So that feels built into um, Straker's character and well then, and also yeah in the, in the case of ufo it also helps to uh really paint what kind of an individual striker is uh this one um really it's if, if we're talking about any kind of character development it's all about cellini mm-hmm. i mean uh russell koenig and bergman they're all sort of if, if we're talking you know a character arc they're really incidental characters i mean maybe right. koenig not quite so much because he is uh cellini's you know, he, he's such a fanboy for cellini wow is he a fanboy for cellini um but i guess you know strong 
strong friends, and he felt Cellini got a rum deal with the Ultra Probe uh, in the end. And, of course, Koenig got a rum deal. Both he and Bergman got, you know, um, stuck um, with with an unfortunate circumstance. But, you know, there was no doubt in Koenig's mind, I think, that Cellini was probably telling the truth. Well, he was certainly not willing to completely discount it. He he had a more open mind towards Cellini's story than anybody else did, even more than Bergman. I I, I felt Koenig was actually in the more I believe him side because he Koenig really comes over as a strong advocate for Cellini uh, th- throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire story. Now Bergman is the one who comes off as a little bit. I I felt he was being vaguely open minded, but at the same time he's like we got no evidence, John. Yeah, you know we've got Cellini's word on it, and evidence from the black box doesn't corroborate it, which is a lie. But we can talk about that later. Evidence from the black box absolutely corroborated uh, what they said, and uh, they they missed that. But oh, what the heck? Let's mention it now. They say very clearly that they saw these ships on the backside of Ultra. Mm-hmm. They have the black box data that shows a bunch of. Spaceships. Mm-hmm. I'm still kind of wondering where the video is. That they they obviously the black box doesn't take video, but did they not have cameras on the Ultra Probe? Because they flew through a freaking field of giant spaceships, and they got no pictures. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. Um, but on top of that, basically, they say the black box goes out from the moment they open the door, and um. For four and a half minutes or something like that. And the official story is that he opened the airlock and it wasn't safe and they got explosively decompressed and they were killed. But later, Koenig is trying to make the argument. He says, well, we got the ships. And then the counter is, all we got are blips. We got, we got, we definitely got metallic blips, but we don't know if those are ships. That's just his word for it. That's part of his story. And then Koenig goes, well, the, the black box recorded... A good airlock seal. Yep. And atmosphere on the other side. So I, that would say that the it was, was more... Something? Yeah, that, that's more than just a, a metallic blip. They docked with something. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. that, he said, was on the black box and nobody conflicted him. Which, of course, is just one of the many uh, sad scientific inaccuracies oh, in this particular please. episode. This uh, thing is loaded. As we were traveling through the va- the void between the galaxies, galaxies, yes, and yet, and that, and yet, Helena, not minutes later, says we are. Let me see. I actually got. She, I had the quote, but she basically said that they were uh, three months from Eagle travel time to the nearest star system. Uh huh. Or the next nearest galaxy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And why not just say to the edge of the next galaxy? And le- unless it's one of those rogue star systems that just happens to be sitting okay. in between galaxies. Where is Ultra? That's a good question. Now, I'm glad you brought this one up. <laughs> all we got, all we got from um, the flashback, uh, it was supposed to be um, outside the boundary of, or actually it was considered to be um, uh, outside uh, the known limits of the solar system. Is that what okay. they said? Okay. That, th- those are the words. Now, let's l- – here, here are a couple of things. First off, 
they said that Ultra, uh, it's remarkably got Earth-like conditions. How in the hell does a planet that far Far out out have Earth-like conditions? You're not in the Goldilocks zone. That's exactly what I wrote. They were not in the Goldilocks zone. I actually have that in my notes. Second, when they actually approach Ultra... Wow, that does not look the least bit Earth-like. No, that looks a little more Jupiter-ish. Planets. It's one of those pretty planets that they they like to go. One of psychedelic one of psychedelic planets. Okay, so now let's talk about where it really is. Well, and okay. also when they went around the back side of it, they lost communication link with Moonbase Alpha. Mm. Which, you know, are they talking about a massively long delayed communication link? No, they're talking about a massively long um, um, line by sight. Uh huh. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, that's what they're talking about. I know. Awful. Okay. Okay. So next here. Okay. So so let's let's consider where Ultra is, or where they where they theorize it is, as opposed to how long it took for them to get there. Okay. Now let's assume that the writers were were crap. <laughs> okay. Uh, and assumed. Uh, yeah, um, let, let's assume that Christopher Penfold, was, which is a, a bonehead idiot, and and assume that Pluto was considered to be the known limit of the solar system, okay. which is when it's at its furthest from the sun is roughly 7.4 billion miles from the sun. Mm-hmm. So, assuming again that Ultra is on the outside, now I'm using really conservative numbers here to give a little bit of benefit of the doubt here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Tongue firmly planted in cheek. So going really conservative, oh, let's just say that Ultra is roughly 8 billion miles. Not likely, because that's too close in my opinion. The speed of light would take roughly 7.5 hours to reach Ultra. And the trip that Cellini would take, well, the trip that he took back, because Helena says that uh, he was in that capsule for for 6 months. 8 months out, though. Yeah, but but he was uh, six months back. That is four thousand four hundred and sixty-four hours okay. to get back to Alpha, traveling at one million seven hundred and ninety-two thousand miles per hour, or approximately five hundred miles per second. Now that is if Ultra is right, just past Pluto. But any decent scientist would tell you that there is something called the heliosphere. And a lot of scientists maintain that that is the actual boundary of the solar system. Heliosphere or the heliopause? Uh, I read heliosphere. Okay. That's what I read I, uh, see, that's, when I was researching. That's the point where the interstellar winds and the solar winds come to equilibrium. Right. That's, that's, what I, uh, that's, that's what I read on my research last night. And that's supposed to be three times as far out mm-hmm. as Pluto. So that would put it, if I'm rounding up a bit, that put it about 23 to 24 billion miles away so if Ultra were beyond that, it could be as far as maybe 25 billion miles, which would then take 37.28 hours for light to travel. So uh, the ship, which was just the little tiny command module, right. would have to be traveling 5,600,000 miles per hour or 15,555 miles per second for a six-month journey, and oh my god, that's really fast. It is really fast, but it's less than the speed of light. 
it's still less than the speed of light. But holy crap, that's fast. It is fast. And you wonder why the Ultra Probe took eight months to get there and six months to come back in the little command module. Less is that weight. because of his brilliant – well, no, it was no less, motors. It, it le- well, well, yeah. Hey, it was the slingshot effect and yeah. there was less – there's less drag. Uh, you're right. It's <laughs> dragged through the Oort cloud. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so you're looking at that, and, and I don't know, maybe it's my mind that says if they found an Earth-like planet, my mind instantly goes, in another solar system. Right? That that's, or, just, that's just the way my mind works. So when well, they're talking my, my about mind, Ultra, they're, they're talking about another solar system. But then when they find those ships, Cellini goes, this could make the dream of interstellar the, the travel, travel real. Travel, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm th- I, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's either got to be out, you know, next to another star, you know, in a Goldilocks zone, or it's Mondas. <laughs> it, yeah, it didn't look like an upside down Earth. But, no, uh, not really. Yeah. Yeah, so that that part bothered me. And and here's I mean, okay. Um right, there's this problem with Earth's uh, manned probes to another planet. I know Earth that planet. now they're now they're over 2. <laughs> and and well, it's worse than over 2. What were they working on? I mean, they were over 2 because the other one was the meta probe. Right. So they discovered another planet and they decided, "Hey, let's send a probe to the planet Meta." Um you still have Ultra out there. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I but can't it's believe failed. that you're just like, you know, we failed one probe. We're not going to send another one to Ultra. It doesn't matter. I mean, hey, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, Meta now. Let's send one to Meta. I, Unless it's Koenig is I, I don't know. Who knows? I, I'm, I'm very uh, – it also kind of makes sense that they brought Koenig on board to get the Meta probe going – if Especially Koenig after his experience had, with Ultra. But he did successfully get the probe. You see, that's the thing. He's been demoted because of political reasons. But the fact is, if anything went wrong on the probe, it was Cellini, not the probe. The probe right. functioned flawlessly. Koenig and Bergman got a probe out. They got it there. And they got it where it was going. And then the human element failed. But Or at least that's what... You know, uh, the Space well, Commission sort of, thinks. So, well, that, but that's the argument that Koenig was also trying to make at the same time, too, when they were talking to Space Commission, which, wow, that office looks so much like M's. But that's beside the point. Um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the point that uh, Koenig was trying to make, that, uh, you, hey, you know, that, okay, something happened out there, but we got out there. Right, right. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, and assuming that uh, – American or, you know, world space travel history is still there. I mean, this is supposed to be 1996. (laughs) I mean, we've already had – I mean, we had Apollo – several bad Apollo missions, and yet we kept going. Yeah, yeah. But but that was Americans, not Europeans. This is obviously some European commission. Oh, oh, of course. It's the Brits. Uh, International. They're too stodgy. One thing I find amusing about Space 1999, and I think we've mentioned it, but if we haven't mentioned it, certainly today is the day to mention it. Um, This is that era in television where they're getting funding from multiple European sources Mm -hmm. so that they can, you know, bring the production in to American production budget levels so that they can then try to sell it to American television. And uh, unfair, perhaps, but that's the reality. And so we get these actors like the one playing Cellini, who is obviously 
not British doing the part. And that's why they have these characters. That's why we occasionally see these, particularly Italian, uh, characters who pop up. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this casting because they're they're making a uh, a, a play to their sponsors, um, especially if this thing is you know if the show is being syndicated around the world? Yeah, I have no problem with it. I like the no, fact that I don't Moon either. I like that way. It's although it is a little heavy on Italians, a tiny bit. But you know, I kind of I kind of overlooked that. I mean, I I look back to the Star Trek model. You know, we always you know you and I are always kind of going back to that. When everyone look, you know, used that as a positive example, you know, and Gene was really, he seemed to be really big on coming up with the idea of the international crew. So to see that done here, I, I didn't have the slightest bit of slightest bit of problem with that. Um, my only weird thing is that uh, there are so few Americans. You know, not that I want to be you know pro USA kind of thing, but there is it's. I don't know. It, 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 it's obviously European actors are cheaper to get in Europe. I suppose they are. You know, they 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 imported Bane and uh, and and um, Landau. Landau, and uh, I think occasionally we see um, we see that guy. I can't think of his name now, but he was in several James Bond. He's in all shows where they need an American. A kind of a gravelly looking guy with slightly curly hair. Um, he was. Um, I think he was in oh. the one with Puzzle Day. He might have been. I know the one you're talking about, yeah. And he had a he had an Italian wife, and <laughs> on it, I can't remember what happened to him now. Nah, maybe oh, he, his maybe brain he was, got burned out. That was it. He was the one that yes. uh, he was in Space Brain. That guy. Oh yes, yes, that guy. Yeah, he's a sub commander in the Spy Who Loved Me. Um, he gets American parts because because he's an American, and um, maybe living in Britain. Yeah, he was living maybe. in Britain, right? Yeah, and and he was friends with um, the guy who played Straker. The two of them. Were, oh, Ed Bishop. Ed Bishop were um, kind of then um, the kind of the go-to Americans in that era for grabbing somebody ah. to come out and uh, and do a part. So um, anyway, yeah, they, they just you know what Americans were available in Britain for Elstree and Pinewood. They're not going to ship them in. Uh, technically, uh, and Barry Morse is Canadian, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, and he was frequently used as an American. In TV shows in that era, really? I mean, because he's got a, a. I love his accent. Yeah, um, it does sound very British under these circumstances to me. Anyway, but I've seen him in other shows, and uh, of course he was. Um, you know, he was the detective in the Fugitive right. the TV series, and he, he was certainly doing an American uh, voice there. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's Canadian originally. So. Uh, but he was in Britain for a long time. So, uh, anyway. Um, typewriters. <laughs> I have to at least point out, Dr. Russell's using a typewriter. At the beginning of this episode, she's typing on paper mm-hmm. and a typewriter. Yeah. I-, I feel that's a colossal fail of a vision of the future. <laughs> we have spaceships. We have interstellar travel. And we have, we have computer. And we have computer. And we uh, have computer. Yeah, you couldn't type on that keyboard for computer, though, because it's just square, and it's got, like, 8 by 8, and there's no markings on it. So, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's like No, it, it, it's like you're working with a court recording machine. <laughs> All right, so we picked on the Ultra Probe. Um, it's, um, it's like Earth's space history doesn't make a lot of sense. The one thing that makes less sense than Earth's space history is that... 
however many light years away from Earth they are, they come across that Sargasso Sea of ships. Uh huh. Space God again? I kind of have to wonder. Uh, I mean, well, you you heard what Koenig's answer to that was. Is well, we got out here. Maybe it did too. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I'm think. <sighs> and 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 how they were all moved together. I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Lots of unanswered questions. I mean, and to be honest, this this episode is really more. I mean, okay, yeah, we were we were just really just dumping on the science aspect of it, but at the same time, this episode is trying to play as a horror, and horror stories sometimes, oh, well, many times, horror do not does not need to make sense in any sort of logical sort of way. You know, a lot of times, they will just kind of toss that out the window for the sake of creating the horrifying experience, and they successfully do that. In, in, you know, in terms of how the monster behaves, but in doing that, they've opened up this this big, you know, box of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. You know, like wh- where the heck did that monster come from? It never registered on any of the equipment. How does it just all of a sudden magically appear? Um, was it telepathically connected to Cellini? I mean, we see that it's sort of, you know, it, it, it would flash its you know f- you know circular lights, and people would then fall under its prey. After which it would then eat them, and because Cellini managed to dodge it just enough, maybe it left a connection, so that when they started to get close to that part of space, it kind of woke something up. I mean, these are all just ideas that we can come up with, you know. And how does it just appear and then disappear like that? I mean, it's just like it's like one big enormous, huh? Did it come up on the ultra probe when they opened the door? Good question. Because that's obviously what it seems like happens. A big wind comes blowing in, and then then where the wind blew to, suddenly the creature appears and starts to kill them. So why aren't all the other ships docked to each other? That's a really good point. You'd think that they would have all connected with each other in order for this thing to travel. I mean, it killed killed their crew of the Ultra fast enough that they didn't even have a chance to undock. No. And it blew the electrical systems, so... They couldn't do so. So uh, that that part kind of bugged me. It's like, you'd think this would be like one big cluster of ships docked to one, to another, to another, to another, all dead uh, in, in this sort of massive um, death pyre of spacecraft. The other thing is, if that was outside our solar system or inside our, yeah, inside our solar system, let's just, let's just pre- pretend with inside the solar system. Oh, must we? <laughs> Well, I think, well, yeah, I think we have to because it's not interstellar travel. Oh, no, it's intergalactic at this point. (laughs) So um, if that creature ate space people or life forms, um, wouldn't and somehow it can make those ships? I mean, is that is that what we're getting is that it somehow travels that Sargasso Sea? You know, it'd be one thing if they stumbled across the ultra probe and it was still attached to that alien ship and you go oh see the creature can pilot that ship but for it to take the entire collection of dead spaceships with it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense um but so if it if it can travel why didn't it go to earth Lots of food there. Yeah, oh, tons of food there. Maybe even yeah. Ultra. Yeah, 
Why not go to the like, why not why not go to the moon? I mean, Alpha is flying towards that nicely nice little bit of space, you know. If it, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions in all of and all of this and how the creature behaves. And, and all we got when they were leaving, and they've, they've done this before, and I don't like it when they do. <laughs> and that's sort of like this shrug of the shoulders and yeah. say, mm, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, this, this, I was, I started writing down that I was once again pissed off that they had completely and utterly failed to take any technology. I know. All those spacecraft. All that spacecraft, and they didn't take squat. They, they didn't try to do anything. Now, they killed the creature. But as they were leaving, Helena did say, since it never registered was alive, we have no way to know for sure if it was dead. It was really dead. Yeah, they're running away for their lives. And then she goes, and we had to get back to Alpha before we blew out of range. Yeah, of course, before it was too far, which Which, is rubbish. Considering they found them, immediately went out to get them. And then came back. If that's the speed they're traveling, then they're not going to land on any planets and have three days of reconnaissance time either. You know, it's like, do they pick up speed in intergalactic space? There's less drag. You can't see the air quotes there. Intergalactic space. Um, I mean, 877 days. I mean, we're talking uh, not even two two and a half. Four or five months, yeah. Yeah, not even two and a half years, and they managed. I mean, yeah, okay, there was Space God that's and space you know sent them and, and space you know, but Space God sent them through the the black star or the black sun or the black hole collision course. Collision course, yeah. Who knows? And- yeah. So there, there's a lot of lot of weirdness that took place there, but I have a hard time believing that the moon is going that fast. That in, that's in that very short period of time they would lose any opportunity to get back to Alpha. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, hey, Cellini managed to get back in six months. <laughs> well, he had Ultra, though. To oh, that's shot true. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. So I'm sure they have plenty of... Uh, that. Yeah, I... <clears throat> the whole thing... The whole thing bugs me at that level. And yet I enjoy the episode. I did, too. I, I enjoy the story. Um, I, it's... It, Go ahead. I'm regularly disturbed by things that just make me – it put me out. I mean, even – we've talked about this before. The quarters on Moonbase Alpha are opulent. They're huge. My God. Not I only mean, opulent, look at all of the stuff he has. Yeah, he had, yeah. He had quite the little weapon connection, uh, collection, although we, I kind of wonder if that wasn't something born out of – his experience with the monster. I, I don't know if that's what it is or not, but, you know, we were postulating uh, one or two episodes back that, you know, maybe you could bring up a jigsaw puzzle in, in your duffel bag when you were assigned a moon base to put onto the, the thing. And here he's, he's brought this impressive collection of tribal weaponry. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, wow, what an allotment for a disgraced, crazy astronaut. And then you get to put these fantastic quarters and, uh, you know, that that's like that's like luxury hotel size room. Yeah. A window out over space. And, and OK, so maybe Cellini's got some kind of rank because of his position. But we've seen uh, people that, you know, come off as just being, you know, really incidental you know, just little cameo bits or, or just little little shots here and there. And they, too, have just Same. really, 
really nice uh, quarters. It's as if it's the same set. Huh. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, 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 I look at, well, it is a base and it's, yeah, it's still, it's hard to believe that they can afford to waste that much room on, on living quarters. I mean, yeah, you're up there for months at a time, and but uh, no, no, they're, they're it doesn't seem it's, practical. It's beautiful. They're beautiful. Yeah, Moonbase Alpha yeah. is gorgeous. It you know, always is gorgeous. But that's that's one of the things about uh, about the show itself. And I, I was thinking uh, as I was watching this last night. I mean, that, that's that's the probably the one big saving grace that the show has, and that. Uh, and we've talked about you know gorgeous cinematography, gorgeous lighting, gorgeous effects. I mean, they make space look beautiful, and they make the quarters look absolutely desirable. And apart from their issues with artificial gravity, um, mm, they tried to explain it. Okay, I'm leaving that one alone. Yep. But you know, even the Ultra Probe had it. And yeah. And uh, I, I'm yeah. They, they obviously didn't have oh. What's the website? Um, all right, I'm going to get this one wrong, but I think it's AtomicRockets.com. Um, there's a website out there that's designed for writers to go to to get actual science for their science fiction. Mm-hmm. So um, there are ways, you know, to do... I, for example, um, in... You know, you could have rotating space stations that create centrifugal force. Right. Um, you have, like, in uh, The Expanse, the spaceships are built like basically skyscrapers. I mean, yeah, they're, they're long, but really down is towards the engines. Mm-hmm. So as long as they're under thrust, you have... It's creating... You're creating a form of gravity. You're creating... Yeah, you're creating simulated gravity there. Right. And, um, but then the... The probe, the way it's shaped, way everything's working, clearly artificial gravity is down along the the long edge uh-huh. of the spacecraft. And eh, we just, eh, whatever, we can just do that. Eh, we're fine. Um, <clears throat> on, on the moon, there is a little gravity. Well, they have gravity generators well, or something like that. Well, they have gravity, effect. too. I mean, it's yeah. the moon. I mean, it has, has, it has gravity. gravity, yes. But we and, know that there's this, there's this uh, area... Or the, there's these, yeah, some sort of gravity engines that Things. are, yeah, yeah, they surround Alpha, and they have used those on occasion, you know, as, as some sort of a story plot. In addition to the fact that it just makes gravity. In fact, I believe they were a key, a key defense measure uh, with the episode Black Sun. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we've talked about the science on this, and it's obviously it's kind of, um, yeah, um, kind of crap. Frequently. So here's things I like. And, and like I said, I like the fact that it's kind of sets up why Koenig and Bergman are separate and, and Koenig's returning to moon base and everybody knows him. Um, I, I also like the, the, the story, even though, like I said, I don't really like the way Dr. Russell is shoehorned into this because we know Russell never met Koenig and they don't meet in this story. And I'm no, not, they don't. I don't mean to imply that they, they meet or anything. It just happens that they both were part of this um they were story. connected through Cellini through Cellini and and his incident um i i like the way that they portray not just the politics of it um this is kind of what ufo used to do 
periodically really well when they would they would kind of put in the the not straightforward so here we have the tale of yeah i think he's nuts i think he killed the crew and he sabotaged the ship and he uh hid the black box or or he he tampered with the black box and he did all the and that is a perfectly plausible logical explanation and and then of course you have the it's totally not plausible explanation that the guy gives, which we, the audience, learn through the course of the story, um, was true. I, I like that they have that dynamic there. I like the uh-huh. fact that Berg, uh, that Koenig and Russell come to a shouting match about it in, in Alpha uh, over that. I'm more, I'm in Russell's corner I mean, yeah, okay, she's a terrible doctor, and so her recommendation is that he never be allowed on Moonbase, and he gets. But back she's on working. She's working uh, with hard data as best as she understands it. And of course, so, once again, it's Koenig overriding her, even though she didn't know that. Right. Once again, my medical advice was for him not to come on board Moonbase. Koenig. Well, I asked for him. Oh, great! Once again, Koenig overriding actual professional advice because. He's got that gut feeling. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, Koenig's feel than to think. Than to Koenig. think, yeah. Koenig's all about uh, the the feels. But he really, really feels for Cellini. Yeah, I mean, there there's a real bromance going on between those two. It's like he was. Well, what did he say? He was he was a brilliant amateur athlete, a poet, and the best all around astronaut I have ever seen. Like. Athlete, poet, astronaut. Man, huh? the guy can do no wrong. No, not in Koenig's book. He no, it's like, like he came out of – he stepped out of a page of Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet he couldn't think to stab the stupid monster in its eye. I know. What an idiot. Like, oh, the big targety thing. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll blind it. <laughs> Which is the difference. See, Koenig should have gone on the mission. If Koenig had gone on the mission, he would have – Hacked it in the eye the first thing up, and then he would have survived. And uh, and then Ultra would have been a success, and and uh, he wouldn't have been on the moon. And then we wouldn't have to deal with his overacting, opposite the complete lack of any kind of reaction from Barbara Bain. Speaking I'm of sorry. lousy doctoring, ugh, Tony, are you all right? Yes, doctor. The medical sensors. Yeah. Registered your heart rate and your blood pressure in the danger zones. No, it was just, just a nightmare. nightmare. It's like, are you fine? Yes, I'm fine. How come you're pouring sweat down your blustery face? It oh. was nightmare. Yeah. He's just, it, it, she's looking right at him in the screen and he's obviously, no, he's not all right. And yet, um, I, I, yeah. And why is Dr. Russell on night duty? Why not? I guess maybe they like to rotate it every now and then, mix and things Koenig up. And Koenig was on night duty, too? Yeah, that, well, hey. He and Connor are sitting there just doing the whole... Playing, whole ch- playing thing. Playing uh, a really chess. interesting game of chess. I think that really was a game of chess, and it just had the names of the pieces written on it. It was. It had it had characters. I couldn't see them for sure. I, they must I like can make them out, yeah. yeah. It, so. it did. So, yeah, they were playing. It was just a very bizarre-looking board and pieces. But, yes, they were playing. Well, space-saving because they don't have much room on Alpha because they've used mm-hmm. it all for all those opulent quarters. That's right, and for Cellini's weapons. 
Damn you, Cellini. Okay, now I have to have this flat chessboard with flat pieces. Thank you. Well, you see, that <laughs> that was their counter to Star Trek's three-dimensional chess. Space oh, of course it was. 1999's two-dimensional chess. <laughs> so then is Dr. Russell supposed to be some form of emotionless Mr. Spock because she's got so much damn Botox in her face that she can't even lift a bloody eyebrow? I'm sorry. I wasn't going to go there. And yet... And yet, there I am. <laughs> I've arrived at Botox Town again. <laughs> yes. Planet Botox. Population, Barbara Bain. <laughs> I'm sorry, Barbara. I love you. I really, really do. Can you even smile without making it look like your face is going to split in half? Okay, see, so you had to add that caveat at the end. Yeah, yes, she kind of uh, smiled when Coney gave her a flower. Yeah, but I thought I heard cracking. I thought that was the flower. <laughs> I know it, 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 no, it, it was it was the face, you know, because of all whatever is in there is so hardened that it was beginning to crack. So, you know, in between scenes, you know, she's injecting herself. Uh, what else have we got here on this episode? Heck, I think I've I've pretty much covered everything that I've got. Um, the only th- other thing that I thought was a little interesting was this is the first time we've seen that. And that is the medical sensor reading what someone is going through uh, metabolically. Well, no, it's not. Technician Jones, life signs, terminated. We've had that. Yeah, but... It's the first time it told anything useful, like they're in trouble, but uh, prior to them dying. But it's implied that they have that... Something is monitoring their life signs at all times. Yeah, well, I, I don't. It just it just felt more Big Brotherish this time. Yeah, you wonder what else could trigger that. Mm. Uh, there are there are couples on Alpha. Yeah, um, I was just thinking that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, or actually, it's more. I I, I can just see uh, the assistant uh, doctor whose name just went right out of my head. Matthias. Yeah, Matthias. He was. Dr. Russell, you and the commander, your, your life signs are both... Oh, sorry. Be careful. Remember, your face could crack. <laughs> um. <laughs> I could take that into so many naughty places and I won't. You could. I could, but I'm could. not gonna because I don't want an explicit tag on this episode. Exactly. So I'm going to put it to two things. Alan gets beaten up. Twice. Twice. What's that guy got against me? But he says it with a smile, so I he's not—he's not the angry Aussie this time. I think that's—I actually thought that was funny at the time. It's like, you know, considering that he's pretty uptight most of the time. Yeah, I'm impressed at how lighthearted he, he takes took it well. Club which over might, you know, what that tells me that being the astronaut that that Alan is, he too yep. has got quite the 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 fan worship of Whoa. Cellini. That's Cellini. I like that guy so much, but why doesn't he like me? He keeps got, hitting me. I got punched in the gut by Cellini. I'm special. That could be. <laughs> that could. That might be. Anyway, so at the end of the episode, there was a line that bugged me. So Koenig is sitting there reading this story hot off the presses off of uh, Dr. Russell's typewriter. Typewriter, yeah. On their special letterhead. Wow, you know, and I started watching. I thought, 
God, that's like right out of UFO. Mm-hmm. If it said shadow on there, I'd be, I'd be good. It's like, uh, but uh, they're like, well, Tony Gellini and the monster, huh? Uh, this, uh, this doesn't have much grab to it. And and Doctor Russell says, if we ever, if we ever find a place to live, and if we survive, we're gonna need a new mythology. Yeah. Can you explain the logic to that? Nah, I can't. I mean, at, at any level, it's like one. Do you need? Do you need a mythology? mythology? No. What you need is a detailed telling, you know, a detailed uh, uh, rec- recording of your history. Okay, and and if, but not a mythology. Yeah, mythology. You know, arguably, mythology is a. <sighs> It is a cultural thing that's happened in virtually every culture that we have, and it's frequently used as a way to provide metaphors for things that happen in life, or lessons, etc., and things. So you could kind of argue that if you're talking to peasants, you want to give them some whippy stories, but that's what TV is. And for us, TV is mythology for us. It is the it yeah. is the storytelling that gives us the. Um, Morals and morals and meanings and, and messages, messages yes. And but Tony Cellini and the monster were this little thing we like to call real. That's history, not right. mythology. And so at but every see, level, <laughs> but, well, that's that's the whole point. Why do you need mythology? I mean, holy crap! Look what they've endured for eight hundred and seventy-seven days. It's it's. It's Koenig's Odyssey. Yeah. And it's, you know, there'll be a book called the Koenigazi. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, Odysseus Odyssey. I mean, that's where it comes from. So you take... The Alphan Odyssey, something like well, that. I mean, who knows? Obviously, but it, it's it all about in, Koenig. It's in, it's in Landau's contract. It has to be about him. It has to be him, yeah. <laughs> it was in Commander Koenig's contract at Moonbase Alpha. That he had to be uh, named in the title of the book. And... Um, yeah, so, but it's just, it's it's the way she says we need a, we'll need a mythology. It's like, what do you need? Why? Why do you, not To only, what end? Yeah, not only why do you need a mythology, but why do you need a new mythology? Wouldn't all of the great old mythology that you got from Earth, from where you came from, are you not allowed to use that anymore? It's like, no, Earth's trademark got that one. We can't well, use and that here, on new Earth. Here's the other thing. Uh, mythology, I mean... It, as far as you know, uh, our our present day uh, opinion, our mythology all stems, you know, you know, classic mythology all stems from looking back into into our ancient history. You know, if so, let's assume that uh, Alpha does survive. They find a place to live. They settle down. You know, and in a thousand, two thousand years in the future, everything that took place on Alpha will be their mythology. Well, you know, you got a point because it's all written on typewritten sheets of paper that are going to rot. Right. It's documented. But not in the computer. No. <laughs> uh, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And yet, is one of my favorite episodes of Space 1999. I really enjoyed this one. I'm really upset you weren't impressed with my numbers. I was impressed with the numbers. I, 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 I didn't didn't mean to imply that I was not impressed with the numbers. You did I, I mean, far more uh, number research than I did. <laughs> well, I mean, the moment uh, – I mean, well, first it was when uh, uh, Russell says 877 days and, I'm, and all of a sudden I'm just getting this uh, – 
uh, this, you know, like, like a nomad message, you know, going off in my, in my head that, that none of this could actually make any sort of sense. And then it took them eight months to get out there and six months to get back. And is it, and what? It's beyond the known limits of the solar system. All right. Let me do this. So then I just sat and I spent about an hour just uh, calculating numbers. Yeah, and uh, I came up with all of that because I, I had to. You know, just, I, just, just for my own uh, entertainment. I think that, as I said, when they basically said we discovered a, a, a potentially Earth like planet. Um, my brain immediately said, well, that means we are talking another star system. Have to be. True, true with the Metaprobe, too. That had to be another solar system somewhere. And and my brain just leapt to that. And if they did say beyond the known limits of the solar system or something to that effect, that also, to me, would have meant this is another star system. Not I, I did not put it – my brain just didn't click to the idea of, oh, it's out past – Pluto, or it's out in the Oort cloud, or it's near the heliopause, or anything like that. I put it as this planet must be orbiting another sun somewhere to. for this, and so I there was no numbers to even try to calculate in my brain because it's like, well, I mean, are we talking Alpha Centauri at three point six light years? But see, that's see, that's about? where I got lost, and that's what really threw me because I was also considering Alpha Centauri. I mean, we've known about Alpha Centauri for how many years now? Oh yeah, forever. Exactly. Alpha so, Proxima, yeah. so for this line to come up in this episode would suggest that this is something that they've recently discovered. It is outside our solar system, but closer than Alpha Centauri. Yeah. See, outside our solar system has to be to me. Just my brain just put it around another star, and 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 then rejected it as going. And they think they're traveling between galaxies. So, right. Well, but know, then the we, but then the other thing is. Um, if it was orbiting another star, I mean, you would have expected some kind of mention of that too. I mean, there's so many illogical points Do, you to that more? entire. Oh, please. <laughs> Do you want one more? Uh, when Koenig is trying to pitch, uh, you know, let's go back to Ultra, right? Let's let's do it again. He says uh, we've learned so much about black suns and neutron storms that we have to avoid. So. That would imply that the trek between Earth and Ultra might potentially have black holes between here and there. Hmm. Which, again, to me, puts it way out, not just at the edges of our solar system kind of stuff. You know, that makes me think interstellar space. And and yet they're not capable of interstellar space unless they made use of those black holes or space warps or whatever. And why did all those ships come to Earth? I mean, to Earth's solar system, sorry. Or Earth's galaxy, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Earth's galaxy, yes. Here you, go. you know, the nine planets rotate, well, ten planets, with no, eleven planets, because you've got Pluto, Ultra, and Meta mm-hmm. out there. Um, and they're out in the uh, second Goldilocks zone. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, it's where the sun kind of the kind of warms up and, and heats up again out there as it's passing a certain... There's, some, there, there's a greenhouse effect... That's yes, out the there in the cloud. second, yeah, in the ore cloud. That there's the greenhouse effect. So that's that's where you can get your second Goldilocks zone. A lot of methane in the ore yes. cloud, and that's a car, uh, greenhouse gas. And so, yeah, yeah, there we go. Makes makes perfect, perfect sense. Perfect sense. We've solved the whole problem. That's good. Um, this is, I don't know, are we second to last here. Last, uh, second to the last, I think. Second to last episode of 
Series 1 in production order. This one went out very early. I think it went out number 8 when the TV series, because it was loaded towards the front, because it was one of the ones that they thought was a good one. And yet, and I've said this multiple times, when it aired in the Bay Area, it was episode 2. See, that would be even a stronger lead. It's like uh, we got Breakaway. Let's hit him with this one too. Because but it was such a bizarre. It. it was such a bizarre thing because Breakaway was very sci-fi, at least in its attempt. Yeah. And now you've got Dragon's Domain, which was really kind of supernatural, Twilight Zoney, uh, monster, Outer Limits kind of an episode. Uh, it was it was a horror episode, and it was such a huge departure that in that aspect it was extremely memorable. Because, I mean, to see a monster like that was, wow. It, it, I just hadn't seen anything quite like that before. And it, it's almost like, you know, in terms of, um, you know, in fact, a lot of this episode really, I, I kind of wonder if when, um, when Dan O'Bannon and Ridley Scott were working on the first Alien film, if they didn't look at this episode, because there's a lot of little nod to the hat about that. Uh, some of the classical music that's being played. I wanted during, to mention that. During some of the the the, 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 the slow moments of, of the episode, you know, when, when they're just, you know, everything seems to be kind of status quo. You just see them busy working and, and you have that music. And, um, and of course, you know, the monster itself, uh, the, the, the horror element of what it was doing to its victims. Uh, I kind of wonder, you know, was this supposed to be some kind, you know, or, or did Ridley and Dan, did they see this and think, hmm, we might have something here? Maybe. Maybe it's possible. I mean, it's certainly very likely that they would have seen it. So, um, as as we all did um, as kids, <laughs> yeah. These things. Um, I, I wanted to mention that um, Adagio uh, in G minor for strings and organ uh-huh. in G minor uh, from uh, Remo Giazzotto. One of my favorite pieces of classical music of all time, and totally learned about it from this episode. Ah. This this is where I first heard it, and I just absolutely love that piece of music. That is just that it was a nice piece of music. It it really um, spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was well used, and you know I think first time I heard it, I would have assumed that it was part of the soundtrack in in much the way that probably I I may have thought Mars Bringer of War was part of the soundtrack, the, the original soundtrack when Space Brain mm-hmm. and. <clears throat> Just in keeping with that, Space Brain was last week, right? Was it? I don't know. <clears throat> if it wasn't, it was two weeks ago at most. Uh, I think it was the Infernal Machine. Okay. All right. And we, then it was Space we, Brain. We, we, yeah. Infernal, Infernal Machine. Yeah, Infernal Machine. Brain? Yeah, we, yeah. so uh, Space Brain was two uh, 99 episodes ago. But oh, then we you're, also have counting backwards. Okay, yeah, I'm counting backwards. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, no, from that would here. be like, okay, backwards. Okay, and uh, so we have uh, this one, um, which has classical music. Space Brain had classical music in it. Remember, in production order, these are towards the end. And then I think, if I'm not mistaken, yep, Testament of Arcadia is the last episode of series one. That's the next episode that we'll be watching. I think that's also got a classical score. So I, I'm thinking maybe I was – my guess was right. Never having watched these in production order before, they ran out of money. Hmm. I think they ran out of money. Possible. 
um, and and didn't. I mean, there's still some music in here that's Barry Gray's compositions, but it's it's uh, it's like stock music from stock from from earlier episodes. So uh, yeah, but I like it. I like this one. This is this I do is too. Without doubt, the best of the stolen music that they use in this series to mm-hmm. me, and uh, a, 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 a really cracking piece of um, classical music. I suppose would be the way to go. Uh, I don't have anything else. I don't have anything else either. So I guess then we will, uh, for Space 1999, we'll meet once more for the Testament of Arcadia and see if indeed there was a story arc for the Series 1 of Space 1999. And if Dr. Russell can actually force a legitimate smile. I think... We can safely say no. 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 Ben, thank you for joining me. Oh, pleasure as always. Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, FusionPatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle, at Fusion Patrol. Or just send us an email at feedback at FusionPatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. 875... (laughs) (laughs) And we're off. Off the rails.